name is Dr. Janet Anderson Yang. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and I'm board certified in Gero Psychology. I've been specializing in working with older adults for a good 30, 30, 35 years. And this topic today is one that's really um, been really important to me for the past probably 20 to 25 years of providing mental health services, psychological services with older adults that have cognitive impairment. I work at Heritage Clinic where we have mental health services for older adults. And we also have what's called the Community Assistance Program for Seniors, which is our two adult daycare centers for Alzheimer's, patients with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. And I've been very aware of, in the past, the, the field of caring for people with dementia or cognitive impairment has been really completely separate from the mental health world. Um, and that has left a lot of older adults with dementia without mental health services, which has been a problem and a real lack um, and really a, a kind of a prejudice against people with, with dementia. And that is changing. I'm really, really happy to see over time that the mental health world has begun to be more open to providing services to people with cognitive impairment, which is probably why you're taking this presentation because you're somehow um, caring for people like this. So here's the, the outline. It's a pretty um, ambitious outline. I think I, I have more material than we can do in two hours, but I leave extra material in there because you'll get the, you, you can have the PowerPoint and then there's references and there's ideas in the slides that you can read that we may not get to. So hopefully that won't be too frustrating for you, but I like to give a, as much information as I can. So I'm gonna go over just a brief overview of different types of cognitive impairment that show up, especially in the elderly. We're gonna go over Medi-Cal regulations regarding providing and billing for mental health services for people that have co-occurring mental illness and, and cognitive disorders. Um, we'll talk about under what conditions we can treat and, and get paid for these services. We'll have a little break um, and then we'll talk about mental health interventions that can be used with people with cognitive impairment. And some mention of what things have been like, especially in the past um, going on close to two years. And then a little bit about documentation. So um, going on learning objectives, among other things, these are just three things, but there's more I'm hoping you'll learn. But anyway, at least three types of cognitive impairment identifying at least two criteria for billing Medi-Cal insurance and um, ways of describing different kinds of psychotherapy to work with these folks. So what is cognitive impairment? What does that term mean? Generally, psychologists think of five main areas, sometimes a sixth, which I can, I'll mention, but Generally, we, we think of 
of decline in one or more of these thinking abilities. So memory, ability to exercise memory is, that's one we often talk about with dementia, but that's not the only one. That's often the main one, but not the only one. Verbal ability, ability to speak and use words and read. Um, visual spatial tasks, manipulating things in space. Attention ability, ability to pay attention. Uh, executive functioning, which is considered judgment, ability to make decisions, ability to multitask. And then sometimes um, psychologists will add social functioning as a, as a type of area that can be impaired. So some, some of the forms, these are not all of them, um, but these are some of the kinds of cognitive impairment, but ones that are especially of concern with older adults. So there's some slight cognitive impairment that comes with normal aging. There's a category called mild cognitive impairment, which is not dementia. Um, it's not as far along as dementia, um, but it is more impairment than normal aging. Then there's dementia, um, which is the term that's been used in the ICD-10. In the DSM-5, they have now become using the term neurocognitive disorder. So you'll hear both of those terms. Delirium, and I'll talk about what that is. And then there are many, many others, including brain injury, severe depression, substance abuse, which we won't get into so much today. It will focus more on, really more on dementia, um, types of dementias. So changes that come in with normal aging. It is normal as people age to see decreased speed of thinking and remembering. So it takes longer to remember things, to learn things, to think of things. And that, just the, the speed slowing down is very normal. It is, it is a normal age change to have a more difficulty staying focused on a mental task, so paying attention. It is normal to have decreased ability to multitask, to attend to several tasks at the same time. It's normal to have some memory loss for names and words, like, oh, I can't remember her name, or. I can't, oh, that word, it's a, you know, people often say, oh, it's a senior moment and laugh. Um, but it is, it's just what happens to our brains. And it's normal to have, for it to be diff, more difficult to re remember things when given little time to learn. So these are the kind of things that happen and you, this might happen to you or your mom or your grandparents and, uh, or your clients. And they say, oh, I'm afraid I'm getting dementia. When it's in this range, it's very likely not the beginning of dementia, although you know it could be, but uh, we can give some kind of reassurance when these are the things in the range. Then mild cognitive impairment is memory decline that's greater than normal aging, but does not meet the criteria for neurocognitive disorder or dementia. And now I'll go into what some of those criteria are. So mild cognitive impairment is a term that's used in the ICD-10. It's a decline in cognitive performance. 
that can include memory, learning, or concentration difficulties, may cause distress and interference, and it is, does not meet the criteria for dementia. Dementia in the ICD-10 is a decline in memory and thinking, which, so both, two, at least two things, a decline in memory and a decline in thinking, which impairs personal activities of daily living and has been evident for at least six months. So six months it takes to give a diagnosis of, of dementia. Memory impairment typically affects, there's several aspects of, of memory. When we talk about memory, we talk about registration. So that's learning the new material. So if you tell me the names of, let's say three people that are in this room today, and then I try to learn without peeking, so I'm learning it, I'm registering it. Then storing it is keeping it in, the, in my mind. And then retrieval will be after I've learned it to be able to say those names. Um, any aspect of that could be impaired, registering, storing, or retrieving. Um, a, another type of memory is previously learned material or remote, remote learning. So that would be remembering where I was born or remembering um, where, what years my children were born in or something like that. Um, dementia in ICD-10 also has impairment of thinking and reasoning and a reduction of flow of ideas. Um, processing incoming information is impaired and it's increasingly difficult to attend to more. So this is the criteria in the ICD-10. I'm just giving you the differences between the ICD-10 and the DSM because we, in our world, we use both and that can be confusing. But when the DSM-5 was um, published, it changed how this whole category gets diagnosed because while in the ICD-10 you needed, the person needed to have a decline in memory and one type of thinking, in the DSM, a person only needs decline in either memory or language or visual spatial, which is perceptual motor or complex attention or executive functioning or social cognition. So you only need decline in one of them. That's a pretty big shift in how we diagnose these categories. And it has to interfere with independence in everyday living. So, Types of dementias, you often hear the term Alzheimer's disease. That is one type of dementia. It's the most common type, 55% approximately have, that have dementia have Alzheimer's. 15 to 20%, the second most common is dementia due to stroke or cerebrovascular dementia. Um, then there's dementia due to brain injury. Then there's dementia due to frontotemporal dementia. That is a type of dementia where impulse control is reduced and people may have more aggressiveness. People may have more sexual act, um, impulsivity or other types of impulsivity, but those two are the most common, more aggressive or more sexual than is typical. Um, we could be getting clients in, in the mental health world where really what they have is frontotemporal dementia, 
but we may see them as having some kind of impulse control disorder. Approximately 6% have other types of dementia, Lewy body, HIV associated, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's and so on. And people can have more than one at a time. <laughs> um, the reference I have at the bottom of this slide is really, really helpful reference on the internet uh, for describing these and other types of dementia. So if you wanna know more, this is a really good reference here. Um, so how many people get dementia? It, you know, the, the statistics, of course, vary in different research projects, but approximately 10% of people over 65 have a dementia and over 85, 40 to 50% have dementia. And the percentage increases as you get older. Um, so people in their 90s have even more of a higher percentage presence of dementia. People can get dementia as early as in the 30s. It's uncommon, but it's a genetically um, driven illness when it's the early onset of dementia, of Alzheimer's. Okay, so how does cognitive impairment impact people's lives? These are some of the things you see. People having difficulty remembering recent events and possibly remote events. Difficulty remembering the recent ones is more, is stronger. Difficulty learning new information. Disoriented to time, date, place, person. Difficulty with complex tasks. So in my agency, Heritage Clinic, we have FSP as well as OCS and PEI and some other programs. But the, the place I see dementia really causing problems is in managing finances and medication. Um, that's often where we first see, oh my, this person may not be able to really take care of their own affairs. Um, the person may need prompting and become unable to take care of their personal tasks. They may not be able to engage in their home chores. And as things progress, they can become incontinent. And that um, sometimes that is a, the point at which families, that has been found to be a breaking point for many families when they can take care of their, if that person has a family, can take care of their loved one at home up until they either start wandering or become incontinent. And that often becomes too much for home, date, home family care. So what contributes to getting cognitive impairment beyond the normal aging. So age, the older you get, the older a person gets, the higher risk they are for having dementia. Genetics also places people at risk. Certain genetic components put people at higher risk. Diabetes increases the risk. Smoking, depression, high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, lack of physical exercise, infrequent participation in mentally stimulating activities, socially stimulating activities. And there are others um, in, in addition, but these are some of the biggest ones. Um, so right now there's a, a big um, push on understanding brain health and, and brain healthy aging. 
And actually, Maria Shriver is, I just heard this a couple of days ago, but Maria Shriver is conducting a five-day symposium on healthy brain health at the end, free, on the internet, um, starting February 27th. So if anybody's interested in that or may have clients or family members interested in that, you could Google that and Maria Shriver and a brain health symposium later in February. But they talk a lot about the importance of physical exercise and mentally and socially stimulating activities as being some of what people can do to try to avert, try to slow down cognitive impairment, as well as diet and non-smoking. So delirium is very different from dementia. Uh, while dementia comes on usually a little more gradually, delirium is an acute medical illness that needs, um, usually needs immediate medical attention. So I imagine some of you that are working with older adults have experienced this with your clients that their cognitive status seems, yeah, seems pretty good, seems relatively stable. And then you might see them one week and they're just kind of out of it or they're, they're just kind of maybe having some slight delusions or maybe some more than slight delusions or they're very sleepy. Now we wanna think about whether or not it's substance abuse but separate from any kind of medication or substance abuse, it may be a medically induced delirium that needs attention. So if you see a disturb, an acute or a quick onset of disturbance in attention and awareness, fluctuating mental status, disturbed consciousness, decreased ability to focus or pay attention, perceptual disturbance like um, delusions, rapid onset, disorientation to time, sleep, it requires prompt medical attention. So it's important that you get some, ask help, try to help someone get to the urgent care or the doctor to check for their nutrition, their hydration, their blood sugar level, any kind of infection, bladder infection, urinary tract infection, a thyroid imbalance, medication interactions, those kind of things need to be checked as well as there's a lot of other things, but those are some of the common ones, particularly blood sugar levels being off and infections that can cause a delirium, as well as again, there's a long list of other things. Okay, just a pause. Um, if you have any questions, please go ahead and put them into the chat. Um, Christina, has anything come up for questions yet? Um, someone did ask if they were concerned about if cognitive impairments are within their scope of practice. I think that question was to the group. Uh-huh. So cognitive impairment, whether that's within your scope of practice, I think you're getting educated on it by a little bit, two hours today. Um, we do not treat in the mental health world. So if you're working for the Department of Mental Health or a contract agency that is a, a mental health provider, 
we do not directly treat cognitive impairment, but we do treat the mental illness that is concomitant, co-occurring with the cognitive disorder. And I think if you're a social worker or a case manager or a psychotherapist, you can get trained in working with people with cognitive impairment, and then it can be in your scope of practice. But of course you need to do some learning in order for it to be within your scope of practice. But- the, asked, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, someone else asked, how can you define medically induced delirium versus regular delirium? Um, I'm just saying most deliriums are medically induced. Uh, I don't know how else the delirium would be induced other than a, a, an acute biomedical event. So I, I wouldn't distinguish between the two. Um, yeah, anything else? Um, no, we don't have any other questions. Yeah. Okay. So on the question of scope of practice, this is, I'm not sure exactly what the person who asked that was thinking, but what we can treat within the mental health system um, is the mental illness that co-occurs with the cognitive impairment. So here are some examples of how this shows up in the mental health world, the mental, you know, the, yeah, the department of mental health world. So people with severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD, they get older and they do get people with schizophrenia and particularly there's research documented that they are at higher risk of developing dementia. So some of the clients that have been in the mental health system are going, are getting dementia. As some, one of you mentioned earlier, are the homeless people are probably also so likely to be at high risk of getting dementia um, with concomitant diabetes, uncontrolled or lack of controlled diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking, and so on. People who develop a dementia also often get depressed or anxious. And then that is within our scope of practice to treat the anxiety or the depression. People with dementia can develop aggressive behaviors and psychosis and other behavioral disorders that are within our, our scope to treat the co-occurring behavioral problems. Um, so these are some of the ways in which we treat people that have co-occurring cognitive disorder. So just, you know, in the past two years, while people have been sheltering at home, quarantining, having or being scared of getting COVID, I've seen a lot of cognitive decline in people that don't necessarily have a frank dementia, but have had something, I don't even know what we call this, but something that looks like a delirium, but it goes over a longer period of time because of reduced sensory stimulation, reduced social stimulation, reduced cognitive stimulation, reduced physical activity, boredom, fear, and stress. All of those things I think I have seen um, some cognitive decline in many of our older adult clients, which is, is really, um, I don't know, sad, I guess. I have a very, my mother is 97 years old and she's been home alone quite a lot in the last two years. 
and I have seen a real serious decline. But as she's coming out of quarantining, I'm seeing this perking back up, which is it's really interesting to, to see. But I think that I'm seeing that in a lot of our clients. Um, lack of physical exercise, lack of structure, delayed medical care for ongoing medical conditions, um, increased substance abuse, all of these can contribute to worsen cognitive functioning. And I, I've seen research that this is happening, but it's unclear if it's reversible. I'm kind of hoping it is. And I don't know, with a little bit what I've seen with my own mother, I'm thinking maybe it's reversible as we get people, people get out and get back to social, cognitive and physical stimulation. Okay, so can we treat these people that have co-occurring services? I, I'm guessing many of us are working in the Medi-Cal system. Um, some of us are also billing Medicare and other um, associated medical insurances. Um, I'm gonna talk about the Medi-Cal regulations because I think that's what we probably most of you are working with, but these also basically in a pretty close manner apply to all the other um, health insurances. So if you're billing other insurances is a little slightly different, but not a lot of difference. So in the DMH system, can we treat people with co-occurring cognitive impairment and mental illness? Yes if they meet the criteria to access specialty mental health services and the services are medically necessary. So as of January 1, the definition of meeting criteria for specialty mental health has changed due to Cal-AIM. And I'm only trying to get, wrap my head completely around it. But according to the DMH, having a mental health disorder or suspected mental health disorder not yet diagnosed or having significant and having significant impairment. So having them, if they have a mental health disorder, they meet criteria for specialty mental health services. So um, that is the criteria for mental health services. Neurocognitive disorders are not, so dementia is not a mental health disorder for the purpose of determining whether or not they meet criteria. So if they have a mental health, a mental illness that meets criteria like schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, personality disorder, PTSD, et cetera, all those things, um, they meet the criteria. If they only, so the second bullet, if the person only has neurocognitive disorder, and no mental illness, we cannot bill to Medi-Cal under specialty mental health services. So if a person only has a dementia or a major minor uh, mild neurocognitive disorder, then they do not qualify for mental health services. Um, providers within the DMH system must cover specialty mental health services for beneficiaries with neurocognitive disorder if they also have a co-occurring mental health disorder or suspected mental health disorder, not yet diagnosed. That's the new part uh, since January 1st. Um, so examples would be an ongoing client in the 60s with schizoaffective disorder who becomes more and more cognitively impaired. 
a caller to an intake department who describes her mother as having become combative and seeing things that have not um, that are not really there, who has been diagnosed with dementia. A potential client that reports that he's having memory problems and is having panic attacks, worrying that he's getting dementia. So these would all be examples of people that we can treat. Um, in, let's see, I'm not seeing the top of my slide. In the California, um, I can't, with the way that, anyway, the behavioral health information notice that came out December 10th of 2021, it says a neurocognitive disorder um, such as dementia or a substance abuse disorder are not mental health disorders. However, we must cover services for these beneficiaries if they also have a mental health disorder. Okay, so there are, um, I have been on this California State Alzheimer's Advisory Committee. It's an advisory committee to the governor um, on issues around Alzheimer's. I have been the mental health representative for a number of years. And we came up with these guidance sheets, which you can access at these um, links for the providers and for consumers. Um, so I wanna go ahead and talk about how do we know if a person also ha has both dementia and a co-occurring illness. So assessing for the presence of the co-occurring illness. If a client presents with cognitive impairment, how do we determine whether or not they also have mental illness or whether it's quote unquote uncomplicated dementia. Of course, dementia is never really uncomplicated, but they mean just quote unquote just dementia. So some questions one might ask, does the person currently or by history have any, have they shown signs of acting in a way that's out of touch with reality? For example, believing things that are not real, delusions or seeing or hearing things that are not real, hallucinations. Does the individual show disturbance of mood, for example, seeming depressed or overly positive or energetic? Do they seem anxious or agitated? Do they demonstrate explosive anger or aggression? Do they act in ways that may be harming themselves? So these are standard questions you might ask whether or not a person has dementia, cognitive impairment. Okay. What are some of the ways that we can help people that have the cognitive impairment? So it, within our mental health system, these are some, there are probably others that I haven't thought of here, but some of the ways that we can help. One is um, providing emergency response. So the PMRT, um, a couple months ago, a couple members of the Alzheimer's Association and I met with um, members of the DMH administration and the leaders of the access team and PMRT. And we talked about how clients or family members or loved ones of people with cognitive impairment may call the, the access team or the PMRT and need some emergency response and how um, if there's a presence of anything that looks like or is suspected to be mental illness that we may need to intervene in an emergency and or helping the 
person get hospitalized, psychiatrically hospitalized. We may have our medical professionals prescribing psychotropic medications for the mental illness. We can provide psychotherapy for the mental illness. We may provide mental supportive counseling or mental health rehabilitation services. We, there often is a need for a lot of mental health case management. Um, support groups for patients and caregivers. These are some, some of the kind of services that we can provide. Um, so here's a couple more examples. An adult daughter of an older woman calls the psychiatric emergency team. She reports that her mother has Alzheimer's and is screaming and has been running away, leaving the house and being gone for hours at a time. She's become combative and is acting threateningly to her daughter. The ACCESS staff assesses the presence of cognitive impairment and psychotic behavior. So the mobile pet team goes to her home and deems the older adult to be a danger to others, takes her to a psychiatric hospital where she's stabilized on an antipsychotic and set up with ongoing outpatient psychiatry appointments. Then the daughter is able to keep her mother living at home for many more months and does not immediately feel she has to put her mom into a, an institution. So that is a positive outcome, in my opinion, I guess. Um, a man develops Alzheimer's disease and is in the early stage of it. He gets really depressed, <laughs> um, which may seem normal, may seem quite understandable, but psychotherapy such as cognitive behavioral or reminiscence or other supportive therapies can help improve his mood. An older adult is living alone in the community and comes to the attention of APS due to self-neglect. I know we've had quite a number of situations like this. The psychiatric emergency team is called to evaluate her. She's depressed, the woman is depressed, has cognitive impairment and is delusional. After transport to the hospital and a brief hospitalization, she's discharged. Supportive mental health case, supportive mental health treatment. So either psychotherapy or counseling or mental health rehab plus mental health case management can engage her in healthier nutritional behaviors and avoiding precipitous decline. And again, being able to live on her own for quite some time with all that support around her. Again, I think a successful outcome. A mental health clinic receives a referral to treat a client who has moderate dementia and has had a diagnosis of schizophrenia for most of her adult life. The woman's primary care physician is not willing to prescribe an antipsychotic for her, but she needs to be continued on the antipsychotic that she had for her pre-existing schizophrenia. With proper psychiatric medication and follow-up, the woman is able to continue living in the community with her family. So these are all examples, you know, that are pretty similar to ones that I have, we have had in, at Heritage Clinic. Um, yeah, so any other comments or questions at the moment? Any of you have? We had some questions earlier. Someone asked, is there significant differences in prevalence and presentation between males and females? Um, I'm not an expert on that, but I'm pretty sure that there are more women that have dementia, but there are also more women live longer. So 
I'm not sure how that interacts with the age factor. Someone else asks, how can you distinguish between dementia and Alzheimer's? Are there different levels of the diagnosis, mild, et cetera? Is there progression in both? So dementia, so dementia is an overall category and Alzheimer's is one type of dementia. So one defining feature of Alzheimer's in particular is it not always, but usually has a slow gradual decline. Whereas uh, dementia due to stroke often has a precipitous decline. So someone has a stroke and their cognition goes down while when the stroke happens and then their level is kind of stable, maybe just a little, little, little gradual decline. But in Alzheimer's 10, if you actually this slide, the third point on this slide in a typical course of Alzheimer's disease, the mini mental state will decline approximately four to five points per year. So I think it's really interesting in our clinic, we give the mini mental state exam every year. And we have clients where I can just look at their chart and see it, the, their MMSE drops like three or four, four or five points each year, boom, boom, boom. And it's just like this sort of steady decline. Um, whereas, okay, so a defining feature of of um, frontotemporal dementia is this impulse control and speech difficulties. And a primary defining feature of Parkinson's is, is more the shaking. That's not part of their dementia though. So, um, so anyway, that would be one way to distinguish Alzheimer's is memory decline and this kind of gradual steady decline. All right. So Many of you might be familiar with the mini mental status exam. I think if you're working with older adults, it's really good to um, learn that. I know the DMH either recently had or has periodically trainings on giving the mini mental status exam as well as the Montreal assessment, Montreal cognitive assessment. Um, the MMSE is a 30 item brief screening of mental state. state. Um, annual updates can really help monitor the course of decline or not, not or non-decline, which is really interesting when you see someone and their MMSE stays stable, which is encouraging. Um, often 23 is considered a cutoff for dementia. However, the normal cognitive function really varies by how much education, age, language preference, um, and cultural differences. So we need to not use a strict 23 as a cutoff. If a person has a lower education level or they're being administered the MSE and not their dominant language or they're more elder, very elderly, we would not use 23 as a cutoff. We would use lower scores as cutoffs. The Montreal Cognitive Assessment, the MOCA, some of you are familiar with, I imagine. It is also a 30-item cognitive screening, but it is it assesses um, a, a broader range of cognitive abilities. The, the MMSE does not do very well in measuring executive functioning, that one category I mentioned earlier, but the Montreal MOCA does using the trail-making test. So it's a little bit more um, detailed. 
The other thing is the MOCA has a multiple choice option for memory assessment, which the MMSE doesn't, which is really helpful to learn whether a person has encoded new material but can't recall it or just never encoded it. So the multiple choice memory test on the MOCA is really helpful. Okay, so I've had people ask me, is there an MMSE score that we use to cut off for services? So when a person gets, so to be able to provide psychotherapy in particular for people with cognitive impairment, a person has to have enough cognitive ability to benefit from the psychotherapy or whatever service it is you provide. If, a per, if you're providing psychiatric meds and case management, the person's cognitive level probably doesn't really play into it. But if you're trying to provide verbal psychotherapy, how cognitively impaired can a person still benefit from psychotherapy? There is not a cutoff score. Um, I will generally as a rule of thumb think if someone's MMSC is lower than 10, it's pretty not likely that psychotherapy is gonna be helpful, but other services can be. But that's just my own kind of rule of thumb. But to benefit from psychotherapy or well, for, to benefit from any mental health services, their capacities need to support the expectation of improvement or the avoidance of deterioration of their mental illness. So what we're treating in the mental health system in the psychiatric system is their mental illness. We're not treating per se their dementia. So when we provide psychotropic medication, the mental health system does not cover memory enhancing drugs medications because that's treating the dementia. It, you know, we as in the mental health system can provide the antipsychotic, antidepressant, anti-anxiety. Um, similarly, case management gets a little tricky because the case management needs to be oriented towards helping their mental illness, not per se helping their cognitive impairment, but of course, if you're providing transportation, it's gonna help both, right? If you're providing access to a medical appointment. It's going to help both. But as, as we'll talk about writing your notes, if you're case management, you have to write your notes for treating the mental illness, not treating the dementia. So that can be a little bit tricky. Um, but when a person's condition has deteriorated so much so that their mental illness can no longer benefit, then we really can't bill Medi-Cal within the mental health system. So for psychotherapy, here are some tips that come from the Medicare regulations. So for psychotherapy, the client really needs to be oriented to person. So I need to know that I'm Janet Yang, okay? It's pretty far along in dementia before a person loses touch with who they are, but that it does happen. They need to be able to process information from in some way, talking about something that makes some sense. They need to be able to recognize individuals. That doesn't mean they need to remember your name, doesn't mean they need to remember that they have an appointment, but the way I understand this is after 
two or three sessions with the client that has cognitive impairment, I will expect them when they see my face for them to have a, 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 a nonverbal reaction, a verbal or nonverbal reaction that they, I'm not a stranger to them. So if they see me and they keep thinking I'm their physical therapist, like after one or two appointments, it's not, that's common that they think, oh, you're my physical therapist or my speech therapist. Um, but after two, three, four sessions, I would expect them to know, oh, I'm, when they see my face, that they know I'm the person that they talk to about their feelings or their thoughts. I'm not the person that they give their arm to to get their blood pressure taken. So if they can recognize that I'm the person that they talk to, to me, I think that meets the third bullet. They're able to express themselves verbally or non-verbally. So some people with dementia have um, speech impediment, speech impairment, and you might do art therapy or you might do your therapy through writing or other, other kind of communication means. It's not easy, but we can do it. Um, but they have to be able to express things they're thinking about or feeling. And somehow they need to apply concepts from one session to the next. It doesn't mean they need to remember the theme or the content of what you talk about each session, but they do need to know and remember that, yeah, you're the one that they talk to about feelings and thoughts. And it has to be expected that the, the, the therapy, the psychotherapy will either help them improve or help avoid deterioration not of the cognitive impairment, but of the mental illness. So I wanna talk more about psychotherapeutic treatment now. Um, and so I'm gonna start with a little thought experiment. So how, what does it feel like to have cognitive impairment? I want you to um, feel, Go along with me with a, a little thought experiment. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes. So just take a couple of minutes and I want you to um, just take, take a deep breath for just a moment and close your, eye, close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that you're sitting, you, you, you know you're sitting in a chair there. Um, and let's just say, you actually don't know why you're sitting in this chair. Let's say you don't really understand where you are, that someone you know, um, so a family member of yours, your, your son or daughter has brought you to an office, but you don't really know why. And the office is, is unfamiliar to you. It's not comfortable, it's not familiar. Let's just say, your, the person you know, your son or daughter has left you in a room alone with, with this person, me, who's talking to you, but you don't know who I am and you don't really like the way I'm talking to you. Uh, reminds you of someone that you don't, you know, you don't, you can't remember who, but someone that you didn't really have a good time with. Um, let's just say you're sitting there and you can't remember you don't really know how you're going to get home because you don't remember how you got here. And 
let's say it's getting a little late in the morning and your stomach is telling you it feels like it's time to eat, but you don't have any, um, you don't know how you're going to get, you know, you feel hungry, but you don't know how to get to your usual kind of lunch that you like to eat. Um, and then let's just say you have to pee and you don't know where the bathroom is and you don't know, you know, what this woman is, is trying to talk to you about. Um, so you don't have the memory of how you got here. And so you don't have the ability to plan for how you're going to take care of your own, your own physical or emotional needs. So let's go ahead and you can process that for a moment. Um, and then take another deep breath and then come back to paying attention to, to our conversation here. And if you would just type in the chat, how did you feel during that exercise? you know, type in one, one or two words of what, what that felt like. Folks are saying scared, vulnerable, panicked, helpless, uncomfortable, frustrated, confused, anxious, overwhelmed. You, you can slow, slow down, Christine, just a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Uh, let's see. Scared, uh -huh. vulnerable, uh -huh. panicked, uh -huh. helpless, yeah, uncomfortable, frustrated, yep, confused, anxious, overwhelmed, uh -huh. upset, yeah out of control, mm -hmm. angry. Angry, yeah, yeah. Vaguely uneasy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that, that covers a lot, of, a lot of the feelings that someone without memory has or other cognitive processing problems that the fear that really comes across a lot in what, what you just said. Um, feeling really vulnerable, like not having control of one's um, immediate experience in life, circumstance. And then frustrated came across several times and angry. I think, you know, some people tend more towards anger than others. But if you live this way on an ongoing basis, the anger, I, I would think it would, would come up um, with the helplessness, the vulnerability. Um, and the overwhelm, the, it, it's really hard to process a lot of information when you don't have all of your cognitive facilities, um, faculties uh, uh, with you. Um, so that was, you know, that was like two minutes that we went through that. So you can just imagine someone that lives with that all the time, how that builds on itself. Um, and also why people may really tend to want to, you know, kind of stay at home or, or stay with familiar people. 
Um, is there any, anything else, Christina, that got added there? Someone said shameful. Shame, yeah. I, I think that's another one that, that we often don't, I don't always think about, but the shame, as if it's your fault, you know, if it, for the person, as if it's their fault, or something might happen, like if you have to pee, you pee in your pants or something, you know, there's a lot of embarrassment with things that happen that because of the lack of control or the lack of ability to control things um, that feel embarrassing. And yet we would know it's not the person's fault, but people, and a lot of people do take on a, a shame for having cognitive impairment. Thank you for sharing and thank you for going through the exercise with me. I, um, yeah, thank you for doing that. So, um, some of what, you know, just to put some more words around what we just talked about, that a person with dementia lives in the moment without cognitive memory for the past, which leads to lack of ability to predict or plan for the future, which can lead to all these kind of feelings, fear, anxiety, suspiciousness. I, I guess nobody mentioned that. And also loss. Nobody, I, I didn't hear loss and sadness, but, um, those come up as well as loss of self-esteem. Others often treat clients with dementia with condescension, infantilizing, depersonalizing, like they, they talk to somebody else, they don't talk directly to the person. That, that just makes it so upsetting to see, but it must be so upsetting to experience when you, it's, it's like you're invisible, which can lead to loss of contact, isolation and shame. Um, losing the ability to maintain a memory for a significant other can lead to a regression in relationships and, and a real kind of tendency to cling or want to merge with somebody that they do feel familiar with. And uh, overwhelm, one of you mentioned the feeling of overwhelm, an overwhelming experience of any of those kinds of feelings can lead to what from the outside, it, there's this term catastrophic reaction when you see someone with cognitive impairment like screaming or flailing or huddling. It seems like they're having a catastrophic reaction to what you think or I might think is a reasonable reaction, but to them it is not catastrophic. It is not disproportional, but is quite understandable. Um, so I think that we can tend to forget what it's really like inside the mind and heart of the person. And I think that's really important for us to try to understand. Um, in the last couple of years, some of the ways in which people with cognitive impairment may be being impacted, mask, think of, I mean, and, and this is obvious, but mask wearing really reduces the nonverbal cues to help a cognitively impairment person understand interpersonal situations. So we all read facial expressions to help us understand what's going on. But I think the nonverbal facial expressions are even especially important to mask, uh, to people with cognitive impairment and mask wearing really, you know, covers up a big portion of that. Reduces the audibility of communication, which can increase confusion. Um, and the, the social isolation can really decrease stimulation and increase confusion. So I wanna talk a little bit about how dementia is experienced with some differences culturally. 
Um, so there are, if this was longer than a two hour talk, I would have us discuss this in a little more depth. I, I, I like to have breakout groups, but just think, but instead of breakout groups, just sort of think about this for a minute. Based on a person's race or ethnicity, sexual orientation, country of origin, language, whether they're some, more from a collectivistic or individualistic culture, what do you think might be different ways that a person might experience cognitive impairment? Why don't we just use the chat for this um, rather than taking the time right now for breakout groups? Put in the chat any, if you have any thoughts about how based on some of these or other cultural differences, these are just some of the big ones, but how might the experience of cognitive impairment differ between different cultural backgrounds? Folks are seeing acceptance by family or their support system, uh, a difference on pride. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Some may feel comforted by a culture where elderly stay at home with family. Yeah, yeah. So some cultures definitely keep their older adults at home more. I think Euro Caucasian Americans have a higher tendency to put their, have their older adult relatives go into a nursing home with this sort of value of more individualistic culture versus family culture. And there may be more comfort at being kept at home with familiar people. Mm -hmm. And the pride in terms of there might be more loss of pride for maybe for men, you know, within, especially within a macho kind of culture or some um, more shame in some kind of prideful cultural aspects. Uh-huh. Anything else? Yeah, there's a lot of comments uh, about that, like collectivistic versus individ individualistic, mm -hmm. um, increased yeah. supports. Yeah. multi-generational households, um, mm -hmm. folks that some may feel more lonely if they come from a more collectivistic culture. If they expect family to take care of them and the family does it, that they might even feel more lonely than if they didn't expect the collectivistic family to take care of them. Yep, yep. So a few of the things that kind of occurred to me or that I've rather read about or thought about myself. Um, so one thing is given that remote memory is retained longer, that people who have second and third and so on languages may lose their third and second language and may really primarily remember their original language. So if people are bilingual, bi or multilingual, they may need to be communicated with in their original language. Um, Talking, you know, they people may also remember more of their if they came here from another country or another culture. They may um, be really comforted by being able to talk about or listen to music from or eat foods from or smell smells from their um, childhood culture or country. Um, it's likely that persons with dementia, okay, I just said that, yeah. 
So traditions from the original culture might be very helpful to them. And also people with early trauma histories may show fear related to reminders of early life. So sometimes people with dementia who have had early trauma or past trauma, they've kind of coped with it, you know, really sort of stoically, but then with cognitive impairment, they may be more vulnerable to triggers of their trauma history. And that can be really complicated because you can't, I mean, I don't think you can really do deep oriented trauma reprocessing therapy with someone with dementia. So it gets to kind of having to manage that in a way that the person can handle. It's really helpful to learn about the client's earlier cultural experiences, traditions, preferences when working with someone with confirmation. So you might ask them, they may or may not be able to report, but you might make some inferences based on where they come from and or talk to family. You might wanna learn about the migration or immigration history of your client, either directly from them or looking up you know, historical accounts if you know where they where they came from and in what time period. So people that immigrated from Central America in the, I think at the 70s and 80s, where there was a lot of civil war and a lot of political up and warfare upheaval, you might want to know about that because you can make inferences about what kind of trauma they might have experienced um, and so on. You can ask family members and you can really incorporate cultural aspects into the treatment, like pulling up some music on your computer to play for them that, that was Cuban music from the 50s or something like that, or bringing in some food that, that will evoke memories that, that you can um, share in a positive way. Looking at pictures. Um, a clinician I told me just the other day that she went on Google Maps with her client and looked around for the neighborhood from Google Maps of where this person grew up. And the client just like opened up with all kinds of memories and, and, and thoughts and experiences of when they lived in that house. I thought that was pretty creative. Okay, so I wanna go on to psychotherapies that are especially helpful for this group. All right, so here are some of the therapies um, that I have in our PowerPoint. We'll, I'll try to get to as many of them as I can. Um, I'm gonna start with validation. Oh, oh, well, yeah, just, I guess I'll go over the slide. Some of the goals of therapy that we can do is helping them increase, decrease emotional distress ventilating emotions, decreasing the intensity of unexpressed and unresolved feelings, not necessarily resolving the issues, but decreasing the intensity of unexpressed and unresolved feelings, facilitating grieving. We can help them express their emotions and that can help a lot. It doesn't necessarily get to insight and resolution um, with someone with cognitive impairment. We can help them decrease self-blame, shame, and embarrassment and increase self-esteem by helping them to see, hold on to their strengths and decrease the self-blame for what's going on with the dementia. Help them regain and retain a sense of personal identity and continuity with their whole life. We can do relationship 
interventions. Um, we can help in their environment by helping to make things um, more according to their preferences when we intervene with caregivers. And, and we can decrease the sense of isolation and, and increase connectedness. So one thing I like to really clarify is a client may not remember concrete details, but is impacted by the communication of respect, warmth, congruence, positive regard, you know, Carl Rogers stuff, and the tone of the relationship. That's really important. It may take up to three or so visits before the client remembers you. I've experienced this so many times in supervision when a clinician's been assigned a client with cognitive impairment. And after the first visit, they'll say, this person has too much dementia, we can't do therapy. And I'll say, go back again. And they'll come back the second time and say, yeah, the client didn't remember I was coming. The client didn't know how to do therapy. And I'll say, try again. And it's, I don't know that if it's magic or not, but by the third session, usually the clinician will come back and say, yeah, yeah, so-and-so seemed to, to wanna talk to me today. So it can take approximately three visits. If a client doesn't remember you after four or five visits, then that kind of is just sort of a rule of thumb for me that, well, maybe their memory just is not enough to do therapy. The client may never remember your name, may never remember the time and date of appointment, and that their dementia just may interfere with that too much, but they can still remember the relationship, the emotional tone, the warmth, the getting to talk about their feelings. So Naomi Feel file is a nurse. She developed um, validation therapy, and while this is not considered an evidence-based program uh, therapy. I do think it's the basis of how we interact with people with cognitive impairment. So the idea is very much good, solid client-centered or Rogerian psychotherapy, connecting with the client, tuning into his or her reality, clarifying and articulating the person's thoughts and feelings for them or with them. So you, if you ask them, how do you feel, a client will, with this will often not be able to answer. But if you say, I wonder if you're feeling and make a really good guess, they'll be able to tell you yes or no. Um, and so we sometimes have to give multiple choices about how they might be feeling. And this can really reduce anxiety, agitation, fear, diffuses self-blame, and can help identify ways to increase a sense of control or predictability. For example, a, a one way of validating is, let's say the mother with dementia believes someone is throwing away her precious belongings, such as scrapbooks and photo albums, when in reality, these items are being hidden, she's hiding them. Rather than the caregiver saying, you've been hiding them, mom, the caregiver might say, um, your, your wedding ring is gone. You think I've stolen it? Are you scared that I've stolen it? To, to really tune into their reality rather than being either corrective or defensive. So that, that is one example. Um, and I'm going to, okay. So this type of approach will really tune into the person's emotions, not the content of what they're saying. And it really validates their sense of connection and 
still being a valuable human being, not being treated with like they're invisible. Um, okay, so I'm gonna, I wanna show a video. Um, the video is not exactly psychotherapy, but it really demonstrates these, these, um, this approach to validation therapy. So we're not gonna apply everything we see in this little video, but it gives you the, the, the feeling of um, what we're talking about. When people are very old and deteriorated and no one enters their world and they're just sitting there, they will withdraw inward more and more. And their desperate need for, for connection is all now inside. And if a person is all alone, even if they're very, very deteriorated, there's a longing for this kind of closeness. Mrs. Wilson, hello. You want me to sit? Can you see me good? Gladys Wilson is a wonderful example of a person who was in the phase of repetitive motion where people use movements, repetitive movements, because they don't have any more speech or very little speech, but they have human needs that need to be expressed. You're crying. You're crying. You have a tear right here in your face. You have a little pain. You want me to touch you. You're very sad. Can you see me? Is it scary? Are you afraid? And if this person sits with their eyes closed, rocking back and forth, and maybe there's a tear coming down, there's a need there. Here. There's a little tear that's coming out. Do you feel it? You feel a little tear? If you gently use touch, and I touched Gladys Wilson for the fingertips right here on the cheek is where the mother usually touches a child. If you touch an infant there, it looks up, and every cell remembers where it was touched by the mother. And often that person knows, even if they can't say a word at that moment, they won't talk, but, or they don't want to talk, but there's, there's a communication. And that person is no longer alone. Can you let me in a little bit? You think? Just a little? You think I could be with you and Jesus for a minute? Jesus loves me. Yes, I know. For the Bible tells me so. I used music because when speech is gone, Music, especially with Gladys Wilson, it was religious music because there's emotion tied to it and safety tied to it. So I used her old church songs. Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. What I did was, when she moved, I moved with her 
And when I was singing, because she didn't sing with me, so I matched the intensity of my voice to the intensity of her movement. And pretty soon, for a split second, we became one person. Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. So at one point, when she got very quiet and very peaceful, and my voice became very quiet as hers and very peaceful, and my breathing slowed to her breathing, she pulled me to her, and I moved with her. And for her, at that moment, I believe I was a symbol of, of her mom. Feel safe and warm? Yes? Can you sing with me? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got He's got the mothers and the fathers. He's got the mothers and the fathers. He's got the mothers and the fathers. He's got the whole world in his head. The breakthrough doesn't happen every time. The person will not always look their, open their eyes and look at you. But if you keep trying, and you keep centering yourself and uh, really look at that person and really mirror their movements. Maybe not this time, but the next time you come, you'll have a communication. You feel safe? You feel safe? Yeah. With Jesus? Yeah. And me? So it's pretty... Um... For me, it's pretty evocative to see Naomi feel, be able to connect with this woman and for the woman to kind of have a moment where she really felt, I, I, I would, I, I guess, where the woman didn't feel so alone and so isolated. Now, as I mentioned before, this is not psychotherapy, what Naomi Feel was doing, and we wouldn't be probably touching like quite like that but the the concept of matching the person really trying to understand the person and really trying to verbalize something for the person and trying to connect in with where they're at you know music maybe we can use um but anyway what are some of your thoughts in the chat if you want to uh, it looks like Christina, there were a few comments that came in, or if any of you want to add what 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 you noticed in that or or felt in watching that video. Yeah, many people said it was powerful. Yeah. Very powerful and amazing. Uh, this work parallels healthy infant caregiver dyad yeah. interactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah. Someone mentioned they lost their father to the pandemic and they know the loneliness at the end was part of his diminishing. Yeah, yeah. Lo loneliness is a, you know, it's 
there's an epidemic of loneliness, they say. Um, yeah. Yeah. Someone asked, can you provide suggestions on how to adjust interventions during COVID? I can. Um, so I think one of the things, you know, especially if, if I mean, I think the soonest we can get back to doing face-to-face, as soon as you're agency or you feel comfortable, I think face-to-face just really does make a difference. But with or without face-to-face, I think helping people structure their day, like coming, having a calendar, getting them a calendar and helping them map out every single day and like four or five or six, you know, wake up, make breakfast, talk to neighbor, take a rest, have lunch, go for a walk or do chair exercises or watch such and such on, you know, like help people like have structure that includes some kind of purpose and some kind of social connections would be one, one of the things that I think would help people that have, you know, 24 seven days of unstructured, um, unstructured time. Okay, let's keep going here. Um, I want to move into a couple of other types of therapy to go over. So life review and reminiscence interventions are often used with people with dementia and are are evidence-based practices for decreasing depression and increasing life satisfaction. So um, if you want a really good book on life review um, therapy, one approach is by Barbara Haight, H-A-I-G-H-T, and her husband, whose first name I'm forgetting, but his last name is also H-A-I-G-H-T. They have a book on life review that is really helpful. There are many, many approaches to reminiscence interventions that can be successfully done with older adults with cognitive impairment. So it can be help, it can help a person to experience, re-experience the pleasure of past successes, strengths, and positive memories, aid in self-concept, help a person regain connection with self-identity. Um, the approach to doing reminiscence or life review therapy is you draw a line across a piece of paper or a couple of pieces of paper hooked together, probably could do it on the computer. I'm not familiar with how we would do that, but I'm sure some of you would be. And then you put in their date, the year that they were born and their birth date. And then you put in important events in their life all the way up to where they're at today. And then you talk to them about um, there's different ways to do it, but one way that I would think would be good, I do think would be good with people with cognitive impairment is talk about their successes, their strengths, their achievements, um, their positive relationships to try to help induce positive mood. Um, that That's one approach. Another the evidence, well, I don't know if it's it wouldn't be quite considered evidence-based. It has some evidence. It's been researched as being researched and has some um, successful data. It's, it's kind of be more in the pilot stages, but compassion-focused therapy. It's a psychotherapeutic treatment for persons with dementia and depression or anxiety. Um, 
And in, in this pilot study, the recipients improved in mood, anxiety, and self-compassion. It includes a supportive caregiver to act as an external memory aid, but it can be implemented without the support person, which is important for some of our client population who don't really have caregivers. Um, and the, it teaches mindful awareness, collaborative goal setting, and self-soothing skills. So um, self-soothing skills like soothing rhythm breathing. So I think teaching rhythmic breathing to a person with um, probably mild, for sure mild cognitive impairment, maybe moderate, probably not with someone with severe cognitive impairment, but teaching them how to soothe themselves with um, rhythm breathing. It helps to develop compassion for themselves. It kind of looks at what are some of the blocks to compassion, um, helps develop some sense of safe place imagery. Um, so teaching, helping them learn to be compassionate with themselves rather than self-blaming and shaming. And it also teaches ways of dealing with difficult feelings. Um, it's important in therapy with persons with cognitive impairment to deliver the concepts slowly, repeating the concepts frequently, like more repetitions than you think makes sense. You know, a lot, a lot of repetition. Um, keeping on checking whether the person understands the new concepts. Providing summaries every 10 minutes or even less, um, summarizing and checking to see if they're getting what you're helping them learn. Providing a written summary for each session, something they can take with them about what was talked about. Giving them handouts. Providing audio recordings of the um, relaxation and meditation practice. That is really important because uh, having an audio recording of a breathing exercise or a visual, a self-compassion visual exercise will, is part of the staying power of this kind of an approach. Um, using flashcards, so using multimodal kinds of interventions. Um, so that is one form of fit therapy that you can look up with this reference and follow with people with cognitive impairments. But so those are some of the techniques to consider implementing even without following that whole approach direct completely, but the self-compassion, the relaxation, the audio um, tapes of the meditations. Another form of therapy that has been found to have some evidence for treating depression in people with dementia is called Restore, Empower, Mobilize. Um, it treats people, it the, the people being treated had MMSEs of 10 to 30, usually a bit above 15. So these are people with mild to going on moderate levels of dementia. In the different sessions, they revive a person's sense of self and self-esteem. They empower the person to use existing abilities and enhance their sense of competence and control. And then it goes on to encourage the resident to advocate and advocates for and with the, res the resident or, or client with the caregivers to make changes 
that will be more in line with their preferences. A lot of times people with cognitive impairment live in families or institutions where their own preferences are not paid a lot of attention to. So we can help advocate that, you know, they don't want to shower every day, but they will shower every other day, or they don't want to eat cereal for breakfast, but they do want to eat cereal for lunch. I don't know, something, but often we can help make, let help the environment make some minor changes that can really be helpful. Um, so this approach includes, I have another video I want to be sure to get to. So I'm, I'm just going to go through this quickly, but the restore sessions are a lot of empathy. So this, this set of the sessions really is like the validation therapy I, we just talked about. Um, the empower is really trying to help them remember past coping successes, strengths, pleasant events, and help them to enact things that they like and feel good about themselves. And then working with the environment to help improve their circumstances. Um, then I, I, this is the next video that I want to try to, I want to show. So spaced retrieval is not a psychotherapy in itself, but it is good evidence that people with dementia can learn new things and it can help in the way you implement therapy as well as case management and medication issues. So it's an approach to helping people with cognitive, cognitive impairment actually remember new information. All right. So this is a demonstration by these two young women about spaced retrieval. So take this as an adjunct to doing therapy with clients. And patient input. This video is about spaced retrieval, a therapy approach targeting memory. This can target different types of memory simply by changing how the individual demonstrates the recall of information. The first step is to find something that is beneficial for the client to remember. This goal should be created through caregiver and patient input. This technique could be used for recalling factual information. This is an example of targeting semantic memory or soliciting a behavior. This is an example targeting procedural memory. The way this video demonstrates spaced retrieval is by eliciting semantic information about a loved one's name. With spaced retrieval, the clinician first bottles the correct response. This is followed by eliciting immediate recall. If successful, wait for 30 seconds before eliciting recall again. If the patient is successful, wait for one minute, two minutes, etc., continually doubling the time you wait before soliciting the target again. During spaced retrieval, if the patient is unsuccessful at any time, model the correct response. Immediately elicit the target behavior from the patient after your model, then go back to the previously successful time interval. For example, if someone was successful at 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes, and was unsuccessful at four minutes, model, elicit immediate recall, and elicit the target again after two minutes, which was the last successful interval before the incorrect response. Materials needed include a timekeeping device to track intervals and activities that are motivating for the client and will keep them occupied for the entire time. 
Space retrieval can be used for a client of any age with any type of dementia along the severity continuum as long as the individual is displaying memory loss. It is important to cater the target of your space retrieval therapy to the type of memory loss that is most effective. sometimes you have a hard time remembering your daughter's name. Your daughter's name is Ella. Yes. What's your daughter's name? Her name is Ella. Good. We're going to practice remembering that today. Okay. So I'll ask you sometimes. Okay. What's your daughter's name? Her name is Ella. Very good. Let's play some bingo. Um, the first word is towel. Hmm. Yep. I have towel. Very good. You can use one of those towels to cover it. Next word is brush. Ooh, I have brush. And they're lining up so far. Ooh. Let's see if the luck continues. But before I do this, what's your daughter's name? Her name is Ella. Very good. No. Nope. Still no. Still no. Mm. Well, Liza, what's your daughter's name? Your daughter's name is Ella. Ella, I know, I know that her name is Ella. Good. What's your daughter's name? Ella. Very good. Toothpaste. Is that on your bingo board? We have toothpaste. Okay, hopefully the luck is coming back. All right, let's see if the streak continues. <gasps> pants. I have pants. Ooh. Good. It's good. And they're kind of somewhat lining up. Yeah. Is socks on there? Socks. Yes. Very Three. good. Three in a row. Good. Eliza, what's your daughter's name? Oh, my daughter's name is Ella. Very good. All right, we'll keep playing here. Shirt. Yeah, you only need one more, it looks like. Yeah, in two spots. Oh. Bed. The next one. Aha! <gasps> I have bingo! No way! Yes, bingo. You won! I did! I don't have any prizes today. That's okay. I'm sorry. I, I'll take the value of winning. <laughs> Good. Well, how about we play one more time? Okay. See if we can get it in another direction. Okay. Oops. Good clearing. Eliza, what's your daughter's name? Uh, my daughter's name is Ella. Very good. All right. Mastery varies in the literature. Our quick literature review found a range of 20 minutes to 24 hours. Many studies demonstrated generalization after this time. Thus, after demonstrations of successful recall after the mastery interval for three sessions in a row, 
a new topic or piece of information was targeted. Stay tuned with the literature and use clinical judgment for what mastery looks like for your patients. So anyway, that was just a demonstration to give you an idea of space retrieval because I think we can often, I until I learned about this approach, I thought, well, people with dementia just can't learn new material, but um, I, I think it can be effective and there is some research showing that this can be effective. So I just think I would keep this in mind, partly in your work with clients directly, but also if you're working with caregivers, I think this can be a really helpful technique to try to help caregivers learn if they can do it with patients. And that was a role play between two young women that did not have cognitive impairment, but it wouldn't work very well if the caregiver was angry or irritable or, or, or frustrated. But if the caregiver could try to implement something like that, I do think it could help the caregiver feel better as well as the, the client with cognitive impairment to feel better about learning things, simple things like, oh, um, we're going to go to the doctor today to get your eyes checked. And then the client says, what are we doing today? Rather than just like, oh, I just told you we're going to the doctor today. You could try to imp implement this spaced retrieval, or get the caregiver to implement the spaced retrieval that would help the client say, oh yeah, we're going to the eye doctor. All right. Um, so just a couple other approaches and then we'll be wrapping up pretty soon. But peaceful mind is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy that has been shown to have some evidence with people with anxiety and dementia. Um, and so another approach you could look up. Couple other things that I just wanna be sure to add. One is family intervention. It is often important to intervene with the caregiver, whether it's family or institutional caregivers um, to help the caregivers understand the effects of cognitive impairment, help the staff or the family to try to understand the elders' feelings and thoughts and needs and linking with resources. So one of you actually at the beginning mentioned resources. That's not the topic of this talk, but the there's the, two web, really good, really, really good websites for looking for resources. Well, a few actually. One would be alzheimersla.org. So it's alzheimersla runtogether.org is the Alzheimer's Association's spinoff here in LA. We also have the Los Angeles, L-A-C-R-C, Los Angeles Caregiver Resource Center that has resources. And then the Alzheimer's Association is the National Alzheimer's Association and they have resources. So those would be three resources to help find connections for families of, of persons with dementia. Um, and then just sort of a last thing I like to cover is behavioral interventions. If you are working with staff of an institution or family caregivers with problem behaviors of someone with more serious dementia, we do an ABC intervention, which is similar to what you might do in behavior modification with children, where you do a study 
say for several days, a week even, of when the problem behavior happens, what was happening beforehand, when did it occur, where does it occur, what is it that actually happens, and what happens afterwards. And then we try to understand what is it that the person needs and is trying to get their need met. And then we try to see if we can meet their need without reinforcing the problem behavior. So um, there's a link to a worksheet one can use. Here is an example of a worksheet of what's the antecedent or activator, what's the behavior and what's the consequence. And what do we think it was the person needed and how could we help the person get what they need without needing to scream or hit or uh, run away or that, that kind of thing. Um, um, any, any other questions or? Someone asked, can a reversal of decline be possible? Well, it is possible depending on what's causing the decline. If it's something that's more like a delirium, a reversal is definitely possible. If it's due to like a stroke and strokes can ameliorate, um, if it's due to Alzheimer's, mm, I don't think so. So it depends on what the cause is. If it's due to serious, severe depression, yes. If it's due to um, swelling in the brain, yes. But again, certain types of dementia like Alzheimer's, I don't, I don't think so. So this slide that's up right now, the pleasant event schedule is um, just another tool that can be used, especially the third one, the dementia version that has 20 items. It's a list of things people may like to do that you can go over with a client or her or his family and caregiver to, to try to identify things a person enjoys and try to implement more of those things. So I guess I didn't really get to documentation, but the main thing is that you have to remember when you're documenting, really for any of these insurances, you have to document to the mental illness, not the cognitive impairment. You, you, can, you should include factual things about how the cognitive impairment is impacting life or being helped or not helped, but a TCM progress note or an MHS progress note or a med progress note needs to talk about how you're treating the mental illness because that is what in the mental health system Medi-Cal will be paying for. So like I mentioned earlier, that's the trickiest with case management, but with mental health too, we don't want a whole progress note to say, help the client remember things, <laughs> help improve the client's memory because that will not be treating the mental illness, but helped improve the depression, which helped the memory, that would be fine. So we just kind of got to be um, thoughtful about how we write our notes. All right, well, I think we'll wrap up. I appreciate your participation. I appreciate you putting things in the chat that I really like hearing, hearing from you and being able to interact some. Um, and next, Wednesday will be the third in my series and I'll be talking about working with older adults with psychotic disorders. <laughs>